Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety cleans professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law, Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at the Wright Council and Skeen. And today, uh, we're coming to you from our Richmond, Virginia office, and I'm joined by uh, Justin Thatch, our new associate here in Richmond. Say hello to everyone, Justin. Hello, everyone. <laughs> okay, so today is Veterans Day, and we wanted to thank all of the men and women who sacrificed so much to serve in our nation's military and we want to thank all of their families who also sacrifice so that their family members can serve. You know, freedom is not free, and the brave men and women who serve in our military pay the cost for our way of life, and we certainly are, are very, very grateful and, and send out our, uh, our heartfelt uh, thank you for that. Uh, as you know, though, getting back to our normal uh, Surety Today script here, we, uh, we really appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. We, um, uh, we want to give a, a big shout out to the Philadelphia Surety for making uh, four new PIN requests last week. That's great. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn and Twitter. You know, when you, when you like or share our posts, it lets all the Surety folks that follow you uh, see our posts as well, and then they can join in. Uh, if you miss a live presentation, you can listen to a recording at uh, multiple locations, our Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at iTunes, uh, Google Music, Stitcher, or Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and on our microsite at uh, suretytoday.net. If you have uh, any suggestions for future topics, interviews, or improvements, please let us know. As always, we have muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Before we get started, I want to take a moment and, uh, and briefly introduce our co-host, Mr. Justin Thatch. Justin uh, has broad experience representing clients in a variety of civil litigation matters, mainly in the areas of surety and fidelity law, but also in personal injury, insurance defense, and commercial landlord-tenant matters. After graduating from the William & Mary Law School, Justin served as a judicial law clerk to the Honorable John P. Davey of the uh, Circuit Court for Prince George's County in Maryland. And while in law school, he served as uh, the senior articles editor for the William & Mary Bill of Rights Journal. Uh, before law school, Justin received his bachelor's degrees in both history and political science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's admitted to the state bars for both Virginia and Maryland and is admitted in all federal and bankruptcy courts in both jurisdictions. Because we're so close to Thanksgiving, we decided to uh, call this episode a cornucopia of surety issues. The Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary defines cornucopia as a curved, hollow, horn-shaped receptacle that is typically overflowing with fruit of the land and is emblematic of abundance, also called the horn of plenty. So Justin and I are going to talk about a plentiful abundance of surety issues today. We will discuss uh, surety issues that we've been working on um, and some recent cases that have come out in the past few months. 
Uh, of course, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, we here at uh, WCS give thanks for all of our clients and friends across the surety industry. So with that, I'll turn it over to Justin. All right, thanks, Mike. So I'm reaching into the horn and I'm gonna see what I'm gonna pull out here. Um, and all right, we've got our first topic that uh, came across uh, our desk recently that I'm going to call the issue of the automatic escalation of the penal sum. Uh, so let's just dive right in with a little factual scenario here. Let's say we have a general contractor uh, that agrees to a $1 million purchase order with the subcontractor to install, let's say in this case, cabinets. Um, and we all know this story. Eventually later on, uh, there's a default and the general contractor calls on the surety. Well, the surety uh, says, don't fret, and they step up and they tender a completing contractor. Well, the completing contractor performs the work, um, and the surety ten, uh, pays over to the GC the $1 million limits of the performance bond. Well, that means everyone lives happily ever after, right? Well, unfortunately, no, because the GC comes back to the surety and says, well, wait a minute here. We got four change orders uh, executed by your principal, and that increases the total contract amount to what we're going to call $1,250,000. So to use another kind of holiday analogy, I like to say now that the surety is kind of like the house that's given out all of its candy on Halloween, and the uh, general contractor is a kid at the door saying, well, wait a minute, uh, I don't care. You need to go find me some more candy. So... Uh, that brings us to kind of the, the question of this topic, which is, does the penal sum of the performance bond automatically increase or escalate, as I will call it, as the contract price escalates? So, you know, take a minute, stew on that. Um, but going into the answer, um, I want to talk about two cases. Now, the first case is one from a federal court here in Virginia. It's called the Centex Construction versus Axstar Insurance case. Now, this one illustrates what is one of the um, widely recognized exceptions to the, the ceiling of the penal sum, and that is when your bond uh, form contains language that calls for a corresponding increase in the penal sum. Now, this one, we had an original price of uh, $170,000 that after eight change orders went up to a total price of $2.4 million. And yes, the penal sum was or is at the $170,000 mark. However, the bond, and I'm going to quote this exact language from the bond, said, any increase in the subcontract amount shall automatically result in a corresponding increase in the penal amount of the bond without notice to or consent from the surety. Well, the case went to court and the surety said, eh, there's no way we can be liable for $2.4 million on a $170,000 penal sum. Well, the short answer to that story is the court said, too bad. Your bond form said any increase in the subcontract amount results in a, any corresponding increase in the penal sum. Uh, so the surety there was on the hook for the full $2.4 million after having a bond uh, face amount of only $170,000. Uh, but in our hypothetical, let's say we don't have that language in the uh, any of the underlying documents. So what what is the GC going to point to? Well, here it, it pointed to the broad uh, the term of custom of the trade, which I like to translate to Mike as, well, you're just the surety, so you should pay for it. Um, 
So how do you respond to that? And uh, that's where uh, we came across, uh, interestingly enough, a bankruptcy court case from Tennessee from the early 90s. Um, and that case had an excellent discussion um, of this issue, I think, and it's is worth a read in full. Um, but essentially what the court undertook in that case was some significant fact-finding uh, because the, the claimant there was essentially saying that, well, industry practice in the surety field is that the penal sum automatically escalates as the contract price does. Well, the court heard uh, testimony from both sides, including experts, and this may not surprise a lot of you, but uh, there was a chunk of experts that said, well, the, the bond follows the contract, so as the contract goes up, so does the penal sum. Um, but then there was another side of experts who've been doing this for 30 years in the surety world saying, heck, I've never heard of such a thing. Uh, the bond has its own terms, and those are separate and independent from the underlying contract. So the judge was faced with these two competing sides. What do we do? Um, and ultimately, the judge came down and said, quote, the evidence does not show that sureties linked consent to a contract change and consent to an increase in the penal sum. Uh, putting another way, consenting to a change in the contract does not necessarily lead to a change in the bond. Um, and the court, in making its final decision, um, reasoned that with uh, the legal doctrine of the statute of frauds, which essentially says um, that it, it says when the circumstances of a contract have to be in writing. Um, and a surety bond is required to be in writing in most jurisdictions. Um, under the statute of frauds. So reasoning it out, the court said, the penal sum of the bond is a material term of the contract, a contract that is required to be in writing. Therefore, any change to that term has to also be in writing. So if you want to seek to change the penal sum of the bond, uh, it has to be through some kind of writing um, and not through just this generic thought of the practice of the trade. Um, so that was an issue that I honestly hadn't thought about when kind of first looking at this issue, and I think it made a lot of sense. Um, and I also like how it fit in with the earlier discussion of the Axtar case, um, where we had a term in writing because the surety agreed at the outset uh, that it, there would be a corresponding uh, increase to the penal sum as the contract price increased. So while that might not be a clear-cut answer to the question, uh, I do think that those couple of cases provide you with a very sensible way to look about an automatic escalation issue. Uh, but always make sure uh, when dealing with one of these situations and a claim for an amount over the penal sum uh, that you check your bond, uh, you check your contract, and of course check the law of your, of your jurisdiction with respect to these issues because a few things like treatment of the statute of frauds um, might change. So I hope uh, you guys found that little topic to be as interesting as I did, and uh, it gives you something to think about next time you're faced with an escalation issue. But uh, for now, Mike, I'll turn it back over to you. All right, great. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, I've had that issue come up a couple times. Um, and I think, uh, I think the industry believes that, it, that the penal sum does not uh, rise with, with just changes in, in, um, in, uh, you know, in the contract. So my first topic will be uh, titled Out with the Old and In with the New. It's the doctrine of innovation. Many times over the course of my career, I've run into the situation where the surety has multiple indemnity agreements that relate to a particular default. 
sometimes the, the multiple agreements arise because the surety is just updating from an old form to a new form. Sometimes the new indemnitors are being added and sometimes indemnitors that were on the original agreement are not signatories to the new agreement. So some drop off, some add on. Most recently I had the situation where, uh, where there was an original indemnity agreement executed in 2012 by, by then husband and wife and their contracting company, which both were officers. Then five years later, a new indemnity agreement was executed by the husband and the original company and with a new corporate indemnitor added as well. The wife was not a signatory to the new agreement. It turns out that the uh, husband and wife were separated and she was no longer involved with the original company and had no involvement with the new company. As luck would have it, the new, uh, the new entity uh, of the new indemnity agreement was the principal on several bonds that went into default and the wife that did not sign the new indemnity agreement was the only solvent indemnitor. So we sued her and the other indemnitors. And naturally, the wife uh, filed a motion to dismiss, asserting that she was no longer liable because the new indemnity agreement was a novation and the old indemnity agreement was no longer valid. We defeated her motion to dismiss, thanks in large part to the language of the two indemnity agreements that made it very clear that neither agreement was intended to replace the other. So I thought it would be good, a good idea to discuss, you know, generally the law of novation in case you run into this type of issue in the future. In addition, novation can come up in, in more circumstances than just multiple indemnity agreements. For example, if the surety enters into a settlement agreement where the principal and the surety are settling with an obligee or other claimant, sometimes the broad language of the release can be construed as a novation of the indemnity agreement between the surety and the principal. Another example could be, you know, a takeover agreement or some other document where the surety and the indemnitor are both signatories uh, and you got to be careful in those kinds of situations when you have broad language and an integration clause uh, in such agreements because those could give rise to novation arguments as well. So accordingly, the surety must be aware of the concept of novation and guard against an inadvertent application of the doctrine. To establish a novation, a party must prove that there was a valid original agreement, that all or some of the parties to the original agreement entered into a valid new agreement, and that there was intent for the new agreement to extinguish the original agreement. Novation can only arise when a new contract is made with the intent to, ex to extinguish an existing contract. Thus, to establish a novation, a party must demonstrate that there was intent among the parties to extinguish the old obligation and substitute a new one for it. The burden of proof will be on the party asserting the novation, of course. To determine the intent of the parties, the courts will typically look to the language of the two contracts. So in my case, the original indemnity agreement noted that it was a continuing agreement and the language clearly contemplated subsequent agreements and the possibility of additional indemnitors. Similarly, the later indemnity agreement clearly stated that the agreement was in addition to any other agreements and that it was not intended to replace any other agreements. Thus, the best defense to a novation argument is the clear language in the agreements themselves. In the context of a settlement agreement or a takeover agreement, the best practice for the surety is to be sure to add a paragraph expressly preserving the surety's rights under the indemnity agreement to avoid any novation argument. In situations where one or more of the original indemnitors is not a signatory to the later agreement, courts throughout the country that have considered the effect of the later agreement have rejected the novation argument. For example, in National Surety Corp versus Prairie Land Construction, 
out of the Eastern District of Missouri. The indemnitors on an earlier indemnity agreement argued that the subsequent indemnity agreement that omitted them as signatories acted as an ovation that released them from liability. The court disagreed, stating that no reasonable fact finder could conclude from the evidence, even drawing all inferences in favor of the indemnitor defendants, that national surety intended to release them from their obligations under the 1999 agreement. Similarly, a Maryland court, uh, District of Maryland court in Polar Tech uh, LLC, um, the court noted that, uh, that it, the courts have only found an ovation where there is evidence establishing a clear and definite intent to extinguish the original obligation and that a change of parties alone is not enough to demonstrate that intent. Finally, in my case, the indemnity agreement had an express provision for terminating an indemnitor's obligation under the agreement, but the original indemnitor, the wife, failed to take any steps to terminate her obligations. In United Pacific Insurance Company versus Johnson Glanders out of the Northern District of, uh, or the District of North Dakota, the court stated that the contract of indemnity continues in force during the time provided by its terms. The court further observed that upon execution of the agreement of indemnity, the indemnitors knew that it was a continuing obligation and could only be terminated by sending written notice of the withdrawal to the surety as provided in the agreement. So if you got that situation where you're, you're dealing with a novation, you can always bring out the fact that the party failed to, to uh, follow the steps for a termination as evidence of intent to continue to be bound. Okay, Justin. All right. Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, for my next couple of segments, um, I'm going to talk about a few uh, kind of recent cases that came out. Um, both of these are actually from about August of this year, so are a couple months uh, old now. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about, uh, and before I go any farther, this case is going to be a Sonoma Springs LP versus uh, Fidelity and Deposit Company of Maryland. Um, but it's on a topic that I would say is always working in the background of any claims process, which is the, uh, the duty of good faith and fair dealing. Um, now generally, this doctrine serves as a kind of referee that makes sure the parties uh, in, in any business dealing are kind of conducting their business above board. Um, or as I like to say, it's the keep your motives pure uh, in your dealings uh, doctrine. So this comes out of a federal court in Nevada uh, involving an owner, uh, a GC, and a surety. Um, the owner wanted to build an apartment complex on its property, so it brought in the general contractor. And of course, the surety wrote the bonds. Well, the owner claimed that the contractor breached the contract, uh, triggering the surety's obligations. Uh, the contractor, the, the principal, claimed the owner had breached the contract. Well, on multiple occasions, the owner came to the surety uh, wanting it to assume the contractor's obligations. And the surety said no. Um, and the reason being is, that, as the court later found, was that the owner did not satisfy all of the conditions precedent under the bond to trigger the surety's obligation. Um, so uh, the, the owner sued the surety, bringing uh, 13 claims. Uh, and among these were uh, two related to the breach of good faith and fair dealing. Uh, and the court looked at it in both the tort context and the contract uh, context. Uh, and under Nevada law, there's a statute, um, or, or excuse me, a judicial uh, law where uh, an insurer fails to deal fairly and in good faith with, his, with its insured by refusing without proper cause to compensate its insured for the loss, it may give rise to a cause of action. Well, 
uh, Nevada courts held that that kind of liability does not apply in the surety context. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners like me are going, hey, it's nice to see such a strong appreciation for the differences between uh, insurance and surety. Um, but the discussion of why the difference uh, in this case, I thought was uh, pretty illuminating. Um, and one of the things the court looked at was, well, who the plaintiff was, and in this case, the owner. Um, and the court emphasized, quote, the owner surety relationship simply does not raise the same public policy concerns implicated in the insurance context. Uh, so looking at it another way, there's just different dynamics between insurance companies and their insureds and sureties and their obligees. Um, and in some other factors they looked at, one, both parties were sophisticated. We have a national surety and a multi-million dollar uh, project owner. And there was no vastly superior bargaining power, um, pretty much because the parties used the AIA A312 bond, um, a, of course, a routinely used bond. Uh, so there was no sense that um, one side really pushed the other in terms of what the bond language was. Um, lastly, uh, the court uh, went on to point out that the relationship between a surety and an owner is not a fiduciary one. Uh, as the court put it, quote, a surety simply lends its credit and agrees to step in where the principal defaults on its contract. This is not a fiduciary relationship and therefore does not present the same concerns as the insured-insurer relationship. Um, so that was all on the uh, tort side of the, the breach of the duty of good faith and fair dealing, but they also brought a claim on the contract side. Um, and that's a little bit different because a breach of the contract is not necessarily required uh, for a breach of the implied duty of good faith and fair dealing. Um, and as the court put it, the idea in that claim was to, quote, determine whether, although the defendants complied with the literal terms of the contract, they deliberately or intentionally hindered performance of the contract. Now, I think the owner's theory here was that because the surety simply refused all of its demands to perform, even though the owner had not met its obligations, that the surety violated the spirit of the contract or intentionally undermined the contract. Um, well, the court didn't find any convincing evidence of that here. Um, I think in a lot of reasons, because um, the surety was simply standing on its rights that the owner didn't do what it was supposed to do to trigger the surety's obligation. Um, so I think good faith and fair dealing is always something to keep in the back of your mind when handling, handling a claim. Uh, but I think this case does a good job of pointing out though, that if the surety has defenses to an owner's demands, by all means, rely on them. Uh, stand your ground, feel free to say pound sand. Um, because, you know, just because you might have defenses and are simply saying no does not necessarily mean you're in breach of some kind of duty of good faith or fair dealing um, merely by saying no. Um, so even though you may get someone uh, coming to you saying, hey, you're the surety, you have to do something. Um, if you have your defenses under the bond or the contract, um, simply do that. And uh, at least as this case shows in this jurisdiction, um, you're not in violation of a, uh, a duty of good faith uh, and fair dealing. Uh, so I will then pass it back to Mike for the next topic. Okay, thanks, Justin. All right, so I want to talk quick about a case that came out this summer, um, In Re Kappa Development and General Contracting Inc. out of the Bankruptcy Court Southern District of Mississippi. In that case, money was deposited into the court registry by two uh, construction project owners, and the um, debtor surety and the lender were fighting over the funds. 
the debtor took no position in the dispute because it knew that regardless of the outcome, the bank and the surety had superior rights over the funds vis-a-vis uh, -vis the debtor. So the surety paid payment bond claims and the premium of a worker's compensation insurance policy, which was a, a performance bond obligation. The bank contended that it had a security interest in the debtor's accounts receivables, general intangibles, account proceeds, et cetera, that was perfected long before the bonds were ever even issued. In granting summary judgment in favor of the surety, the court held the right of a surety to retainage is superior to a creditor's security interest in accounts receivable, general intangibles, and account proceeds, regardless of when the creditor's security interest was perfected. The court made quick work uh, of brushing aside the bank's meritless arguments that the surety was a volunteer, that the funds were, were not retainage, uh, addressing the bank's argument that its security interest was perfected before the bonds were issued, the court stated, quote, the right of equitable subrogation is not governed by the priority rules of the Uniform Commercial Code. When the funds at issue are retainage, the surety's right of equitable subrogation is superior to the right of an SME bank, unquote. The court further observed that because, quote, the surety's right of equitable subrogation is based on equity, not the UCC, it is immaterial whether the bank filed its financing statement before or after the bond was issued. Either way, the surety wins, unquote. The court cited to a treatise, the law of secured transactions under the Uniform Commercial Code, basically saying the same thing. The court further noted that whether the bank has any rights in the retainage depended on whether the debtor had any rights in the retainage. The security interest is enforceable only if the debtor has rights in the collateral. An assignee's rights, like the bank, can arise can rise no higher than the assignor, the debtor's rights. A defaulting contractor has no rights in the retainage. Upon default, the remaining funds are to be used to complete the project and satisfy subcontractors and suppliers to the project. The bank also argued that the surety was subrogated to the rights of the suppliers whose claims it satisfied, but those subs and suppliers were mere general unsecured creditors in the bankruptcy. Thus, the bank argued the surety's rights are subordinate to the rights of the bank in the bankruptcy because the bank was a secured creditor. However, the court noted that because the surety's right of equitable subrogation relates back to the date of the issuance of the bond, under the bankruptcy law, the retainage never became property of the estate. At most, the bankruptcy estate could succeed only to the debtor's possessory interest in the retainage as a mere legal title, not to the equitable interest of the subcontractors and suppliers. So just always good to uh, get a case that, you know, where the surety wins. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to very uh, briefly go through um, my last topic here because uh, coming down to the end of our time. Um, but this one is actually in the payment bond context. And uh, if anyone wants to look it up, this is the uh, Trombley Enterprises versus Sauer Inc. case um, from federal court out in California. Um, and this covers the, uh, both the, the theories of economic duress and fraudulent inducement. Um, and I would encourage you, if you get a chance or are able to look at the case, because I think a lot of this has to do with this specific specific factual circumstance. Uh, but essentially, we had a, a painting subcontractor on a federal project uh, that essentially was part of uh, one of these uh, projects that went off the rails. Um, 
They were supposed to begin work in June 2015, and due to delays on the project, none of which were theirs, uh, they didn't get uh, finish it up until October 2016, uh, when it was originally supposed to be done in March. Um, but the, the issue here essentially concerns a waiver, um, and that ultimately led to this, among other things, uh, payment bond claims against the surety. Um, but the, the main issue here to look at with the court was this, this idea of economic duress, uh, which essentially was that we had a, a less sophisticated painting subcontractor uh, that by the time all was said and done, they had 32 change orders totaling about $630,000. Well, the GC only was willing to uh, pay them about 105000 total. Um, and in the end, they had them sign uh, one final partial waiver and lien release for about 41,000, uh, which didn't save, uh, expressly save them any claims. Um, however, the court, uh, excuse me, the subcontractor brought suit anyway. Um, and the court found that this was a situation that economic duress by the GC uh, negated the the waiver, or I, well, actually, it was a summary judgment issue, so it was ultimately to be decided. But they the the GC didn't win outright on its waiver, um, and it found that because it had all this knowledge about the project and continued to promise them to pay in order to induce them to do all this additional work, uh, that it was essentially a, a moment of duress to require the uh, subcontractor to sign this waiver in order to get just a little bit of money that it was owed. With the idea being that this small business had expended all of this money um, and therefore were in kind of dire need of any cash, so they really didn't have a choice in signing the lien waiver to get that little bit of money back. Um, so that affects, uh, the, and, and there was also issues of fraudulent inducement in the context of uh, the, the sub was promised the entire time all this money from the GC uh, that it never got um, and essentially screwed them over in the end. Um, so there were Miller Act payment bond claims brought against the sureties. And in the end, the sureties, even with this waiver uh, by the subcontractor are opened up to the liability um, uh, under the bond, uh, if ultimately it was decided that the uh, economic duress or the fraudulent inducement uh, negated that. Therefore, even with a waiver by a sub, there is still a chance that it could come back um, if the principal or contractor's uh, conduct uh, might lead to negating that waiver. Uh, so just something to look out for. Um, I'll pass it back to Mike. All right, thanks, Justin. Well, we're out of time. There was one case uh, I wanted to chat with you all about, and I'll, I'll give you the site so you can go check it out. I'm sure you're probably already aware of it. It's Hanover Insurance Company versus Dunbar Mechanical Contractors, LLC. It's a uh, unreported decision, 2019 Westlaw 2353046 out of the Eastern District of Arkansas, uh, June 3rd, 2019. In that case, there was a, um, um, an illegal contract and the court said basically the surety didn't have to, didn't have any obligations under its bond to the obligee because the contract was illegal. And, and, and the court even said that, hey, if the surety had paid, then it might even be guilty of a violation of the False Claims Act. So, so you can use the False Claims Act uh, affirmatively to help you. And we actually have a situation like that now where we're, we're making that argument. 
So in closing, before I open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, December 9th at 1230, of course, and we might even have an appearance by uh, Mr. George Backrack. so we'll see. Uh, upcoming events in the surety industry, uh, the, uh, the PSEA, the Philadelphia Surety Claims, is holding its lunch meeting on November 13th at Meggiano's in Philadelphia. We're going to have uh, Richard Tasker from Stage talking. Uh, the Chicago Surety Claims Association will be holding its annual holiday lunch um, at uh, December 5th, 2019. I think that's at Maggiano's also in uh, Chicago. That's always a fun event. They do a trivia thing there that's really fun. Uh, and then the Atlanta Surety Claims Association lunch meeting will be on November 14th, 2019, and we'll feature uh, Mr. Doug Allen with Forcon, and he'll be talking about the seven deadly sins of the contractor. If you haven't heard Doug speak before, he's really good. He actually gave version of that presentation on the surety today uh, back in back in June. So thanks so much for joining us today. I look forward to speaking with you again next month. And uh, now I'm going to try to unmute the line here. Hi, this is Larry Jortner from uh, CNA in Chicago. I'm here Hi, Larry. with our crew here. Um, we I, I wanted to uh, first of all ask you about that case in Nevada that um, where they basically said um, that the same public policy uh, doesn't apply uh, to construction obligations as it does to payment bond claimants. Can you give me the sites for that case, please? And the name uh, of the Sure. Case? Yes. Um, so that was, um, and this is the, uh, so I'll have to give you the Westlaw number because um, this is a, it's a newer case, but it's a 2019 uh, WL. 3848790. And again, that's Sonoma Springs LP uh, versus the F&D of Maryland. Sonoma Springs. Uh, okay, and that number again is, I got 219 uh, LW. Uh, WL3848790. Uh, Okay, great. Um, and Mr. Grafinski, Mr. Grafinski has it because he has a claim of uh, touching on that from from a very uh, an insurance complaint from a very angry um, private obligee. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that will be a reported case. Um, I, I see that. I think we have a slip opinion here, so they haven't assigned it yet to the uh, the federal supplement. Um, so there hopefully should be a final site for that coming later. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, any more questions? Yeah. Well, actually, I have a comment on. Um, you, you talked about uh, a legal contract, and that touched with the False Claims Act in Arkansas. Uh, I recently had a case uh, that you might want to know about in uh, New Jersey with the Atlantic City Board of Education. Uh, two weeks before the trial, we prevailed on a summary judgment motion uh, in the Superior Court in New Jersey. Um, uh, against against the Atlantic City Board of Education, based on the fact that uh, the underlying construction contract was signed uh, ultra virusly by by uh, members of the board, and since they didn't have the authority to write the construction contract, the surety had no obligations under it, even under a public bond. So that was kind of interesting case. So it's not just False Claims Act; it's any um, anything that might invalidate the underlying 
construction contract can get you out of a performance bond claim. Right, right. That's great. I, I, what we have going on now is, is a series of cases where the, the GC hired a quote-unquote subcontractor who then brings in illegal, uh, illegal aliens to do the work, pays them in cash, and then everybody claims that, that everybody's independent and, and nobody pays any taxes, nobody pays any insurance. You know, it, it's just skirting all the laws that relate to, you know, labor on a job. And we're saying, you know, hey, that's an illegal, that's an illegal arrangement. We're not going to be, we're not going to be paying your payment bond claims because, uh, you know, you basically have violated every law, and we can't be a party to it because it's an illegal contract. And if we did pay it, and we tried to get the funds out of the government for it, we'd be charged with violating the False Claims Act. So, yeah, we're we're uh, we're dealing with that same thing. Yeah, it seems to be going around like an epidemic. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting, though. I think we and I, I wrote an article that's going to come out in the uh, FSLC uh, winter edition of the newsletter for the FSLC, and uh, and I'm I'm talking about being mindful of the False Claims Act in it, and and basically how we've got to start, you know, really looking at everything we do as uh, surety claims folks, and um, and including using illegalities and False Claims Act as a defense. Yes, yes, that, uh, that, and I think you have to look at it the same way as uh, the government at one point was trying to find uh, not only sureties, but actually the surety adjusters liable as responsible persons when, um, when, when uh, fringe benefits weren't being paid on, on federal government contracts especially. Um, there seemed to be some, some uh, um, appetite for uh, making sureties and even the uh, claims handlers responsible under the False Claims Act as well. Yeah, yeah, there was just a recent settlement in September, I think out of the Western District of North Carolina where a surety paid, I think about a million dollars to resolve False Claims Act. And and the case that our office is handling is still ongoing. The parties are, uh, I think, going to engage in a mediation, but um, it's, it's out there. All right, any more questions from anyone? I've got one. What was the um, economic um, duress case? I missed that. This is, I'm sorry, this is Kim Moore calling with ICW Group. Hi, hi, hold on. Uh, sure, uh, yeah, that's, um, uh, it will be another Westlaw site here as it's another slip copy, uh, but it's another 2019 uh, WL uh, three eight zero four seven one zero, um, and that's Trombley Enterprises uh, versus Sauer S A U E R Inc. from uh, the okay. Northern District of California. Thanks. Any anything else? Yeah, this is Ted with CNA. I had a question for you uh, regarding escalation issue. Sure. Put a little twist. Put a little twist on this. <clears throat> the appeal sum of the bond is a million dollars, and the language in the bond is, is is silent as to change orders. And lo and behold, change order A comes in for a um, hundred thousand dollars. The obligee, the surety, and of course the subcontractor all agree to this hundred thousand dollar change order. So they just go ahead and complete the change order. 
Lo and behold, change order B, an unrelated issue, comes in for another $100,000. All three agree, but the surety now puts in language that says, oh, by the way, since there is change orders, we want premium on change order A and B at the end of the project. Yes. Does the principal have to pay the premiums on those? Yeah, I think the industry has always taken the view that change orders will generate uh, premiums increases, and 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 you know, and that's always been viewed by obligees and principals as being incongruous with the argument that. But while we ask for additional premium, we don't increase our penal sum. But really, it's just a recognition of the extra risk, right? The change order involves extra work; it involves extra time. And so, you know, you've got you've got an increase in the risk, and so there should be a, a corresponding premium increase. But that doesn't affect the penal sum. That's uh, that's the way the industry has always handled it. Now, you know, Justin's done the research. I, I don't think there's a lot of case law out there talking about this stuff. No, yeah. uh, and, and I don't know if I gave it when I uh, referred to that section, uh, but that case I was talking about from uh, it's one four zero br two fourteen. Uh, that's the in-ray technology case um, that goes through a discussion of that issue. Um, the judge there actually does, and, and the exact details of what he ultimately decides on that, um, it, uh, I, I'm not remembering at the moment, but there is a discussion in there of the issue as it relates to premium um, and the charging of additional premium and stuff like that. Uh, so I would encourage anyone... Um, uh, who's interested to to look at that discussion uh, in that case, along with the, the entire uh, discussion. Um, but I think Mike's right. There's there's not a ton out there on that issue, but it it will be one of the factors that is looked at. Um, I think uh, if if and when this issue comes up, um, as to you know just the surety's conduct in the whole thing. Uh, in our case, we I, I don't think we had. Well, I don't really remember, uh, but. Um, there was no kind of it, the surety really never expressly agreed to anything um, in our case, uh, which I think uh, was helpful um, in making that argument. Um, but uh, any any last questions? So they put that premium addition into the change order, though, right? So yeah, I mean, again, it goes back even even though even though the premiums being charged for the change order, it still goes back to the question of do the parties or have the parties consented to an increase of the penal sum. And, and if that's not addressed, then oh, under the right. statute of fraud issue, you know. All right, everybody, I appreciate you calling in on this holiday, this Veterans Day. I got to tell you, I love the traffic around DC because uh, everybody was off. <laughs> All right, take care, everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.